Hi, and welcome to the Sustainable Business Podcast. I'm Will Richardson. We'll start this episode with a question. Does food have the power to save the world? Well, today we meet two people who firmly believe it can. For over 20 years, they've been on a mission to make shopping sustainably more simple. And one sign of their success is the increasingly common sight of their bright yellow vans delivering organic fruit and veg to our doors. They are, of course, Abel and Cole. Just like us, they're a B Corporation, and here at Green Elements, we've been working with Abel and Cole since 2019. And we're excited to welcome Steph Sommel and Ed Ayton to talk about the company and particularly their climate emergency project. Now, perhaps, Steph, you could kick off by telling us a bit about what you both do at Abel and Cole, but Steph, if you could go first. Of course. Good Good morning and thanks for asking us to be part well. So with Ed and others in the team, I look for opportunities to decrease any negative environmental and social impact that we have as a business. Now that includes doing our bit for the community through volunteering and charitable giving, proposing strategies for lowering our carbon footprint, informing customers through eco-impact labelling on food products and diverting food surplus first and foremost to humans. Um, and, and also it involves things like ensuring that we have as little packaging as possible and, and that it's of the most suitable type. And last but not least, that we continue to be a member of the B Corp community, just like yourself. And how about you, Ed? Yeah, thanks, Will. So, uh, so I am Sustainability and Farming Communications Manager. Bit of a mouthful, but it <laughs> represents the fact that I keep my fingers in a lot of pies. So, uh, so Steph and I work very closely together, as she alluded to, and, and you know, tackling the, um, the the bigger problems. I like to think the the, the business faces. So, my job title uh, implies that anywhere that we communicate about our sustainability, um, so anywhere we're talking about soil, biodiversity, carbon, um, anywhere we're talking about our suppliers, so what our farmers get up to, generally those communications have my prints on it. Brilliant and. What's it like working at Abel and Cole? Who wants to go first? Marvelous, marvelous. <laughs> I'll go first. I'll dive. I'll dive straight into that one. I've got. Um, you see, I, I always describe myself as having had a few jobs in my lifetime, and it's great when you finally work for someone um, that gets you. When you work for a good business, it makes a hell of a difference. I think um, being part of the B Corp really reaffirmed that because one of the sections of the B Corp is how they is how our company treats its workers and the way that B Corp describes it is what kind of effect does the business have outside your working hours um, I'm not talking about working unpaid hours I'm uh, meaning cultural and, and and welfare wise and it's 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 amazing I think um, I think a lot of people come to Abel and Cole from a variety of backgrounds and it's amazing how the brand can really you know, amalgamate that um, that sense of responsibility in all of us and purpose too. I've spoken quite a bit about purpose over the last few weeks, but it's something that the more you think about it and where you see it embodied in a company like Abel & Cole, um, you really get to know what that looks like. And what about you, Steph? Um, yeah, a lot of what Ed's just said, but um, I've just celebrated uh, 17 years at Abel & Cole on Monday. So May 9th, 2005, I started with the company. And, and back then, I I, I uh, worked as PA to Keith Abel. So I got to work with him very closely for a few years, which which was fantastic. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's the sort of, you, you 
there's just no substitute for that sort of charismatic uh, founder personality. And Keith certainly knew our customer base better than anyone and what they were looking for. So it was a real privilege. And um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I've forgotten what it's like elsewhere, to be honest with you, because it's been such such a long time now. Um, so yeah, it's it's great, and I think the the keyword Ed just used was purpose. You know, we uh, I think it's more more important in our society that we work for businesses that have purpose, and and I think you know at Able and Call we have that, and that's a, it's a wonderful feeling. You've just you've just mentioned um, Able. Now, as a customer of yours, when you were out of a Brixton um, garage. Um, and I don't know when that was. Was it? I don't know if it was pre two thousand five. To be honest with you, um, but could you tell us a bit of the history around um, Abel and Cole and how it all came about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I joined May two thousand and five, we were actually still at the uh, Mahatma Gandhi Industrial Estate on Milkwood Road in Brixton, and but we were in the process of. Well, actually, no. Were we in the process of moving out? No, not just not just then, but we had just taken on the production facility in Andover. So that was a big step for us. And uh, and it was within a year in 2006, we moved into uh, Waterside Way in Wimbledon, which is where we, we are currently based and have been since. Um, so yeah, back then, gosh, um, we were about a tenth of the size that we are now, I think. So, we, you know, we've grown exponentially over the last um, last 17 years. What was it like? I mean, the, the key thing, but it's like it's like any small business. You just wear so many hats, don't you? And and I mean, until not so long ago, I was still looking after the mobile phone records for the business. <laughs> you know, it's just one of those legacy things that just sort of randomly stay with you over the years. So yeah, it was just um, we all wore many hats then, and I think as we've grown, you know, we've just become you're more specialized in the things that we are good at and that we are passionate about and and for me that's always been the the element of sustainability and i mean the first project i led back in 2009 was switching from our then polystyrene product chill boxes to wool cool yeah which exactly yeah which is still one of my favorite projects of all time you know switching over to to wool cool with you know the uh, then Angela Morris, today Josie Morris, of course, leads World Cool. And, and and that was a real privilege working with that family. And and we still are working with them very closely. You've both talked about purpose a bit. And I'd be really interested to know, back in those early days, would you say that the same purpose-driven business is the same as it is now? That's an interesting question. So this is something that someone asked me the other day. Has the business had to change tack? And... Upon reflection, I thought the business started in 1998, 1988. Keith Abel lugging a sack of potatoes around Brixton, door to door. And it was when he went to visit one of his suppliers and his supplier threw open the barn doors and there was just stacks and stacks and stacks of tin cans with the skull and crossbones on them. And Keith thought, well, we don't wear gas masks when we eat the stuff. So why are we using this? And um, and I like to think of it as, as the late 80s was a time when you could really make a business out of anything. But it was also when people, th- 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 there was this um, sudden mass awareness of the importance of, of sustainability. And that's a bit of an overused word these days, but it's quite a buzzword back then. And I think we just saw the crossover of this mass awareness with the, the end of the good old days where you could make a business out of anything. So I think anyone who has been 
anyone who's in the anyone who describes themselves as sustainable these days has probably had to change tact if they're older than Abram Cole. But I'd say we're at the age now, so we're thirty-three. Uh, the business, not myself. Mm. <laughs> so I'd say that we probably haven't had to change tack much in that time because a business, so people always, I think purpose, vision, values, mission, these are quite slippery words to define. But for me, purpose, if someone asks me to articulate purpose and the best way for me to recommend anyone articulates purpose is to think, who is your, what is your business when it's at its best? Who are you when you're at your best? That's how I articulate purpose. Yeah. And I don't think that's changed in 33 years. So we've mentioned your climate emergency projects. What exactly is it? Very, very good question. So we first, um, well, just to backtrack a bit, I mean, we all know by now that we need to cut our emissions by about you know half by 2030 in order to stand a chance to reach net zero by 2050. And, and for us, that's meant submitting our reduction targets with your help, of course, well, um, to the science-based target initiative and creating a roadmap on how to get there. So the climate emergency project really is just that. It's it's assessing our carbon footprint, identifying the hotspots and taking action to uh, mitigate the risks and to drive those emissions down and doing it with the help of businesses like yourself, with you know credible standards to align ourselves with, such as the SBTI that I've already mentioned. So that really is the climate emergency project for us. For scope one and two, it's pretty straightforward. You know, the obvious ones are you know switching to an electric van fleet, continuing to uh, use renewable energy, which we already do. The slightly less obvious ones perhaps are reducing, you know, reliance on gas, replacing refrigerants with lower carbon alternatives. And, you know, last but not least, of course, reducing our consumption full stop through, you know, better insulation, switching to um, more carbon efficient equipment, using LED lighting, etc. Now, scope three makes up about 93% of our total carbon footprint. And that, of course, includes all of our food and drink products. And because the business is forecasted to grow between now and 2030, an absolute reduction will be quite difficult. And so, therefore, our target is, is to see a 53% reduction in intensity on scope three by 2030, with the caveat that our scope three at that stage cannot exceed that of our baseline year 2020. Now, we'll achieve that through working with our suppliers to decarbonize through lower carbon transport methods, such as, you know, using HVO, if not electric, um, using renewable energy, of course, and focusing sales on lower rather than higher carbon products. Although that said, even our higher carbon products are are relatively low compared to the non-organic conventionally farmed products. So why is that so important to us? Well, our mission is to become the most sustainable home delivery service in the UK. And with that comes taking the lead. And we firmly believe that it's morally, legally and commercially the right thing to do for the business. We actually work together to measure the company's carbon footprint. Steph, can you just explain what was measured and perhaps what your biggest carbon hotspots were? In relation to that, I think we've talked about the scope one and two emissions, but within scope three. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, so far, <clears throat> your team have measured the calendar year 2019 and 2020 carbon footprint uh, for us. We're currently finalizing our 2021 carbon footprint with your help. And as you said, that includes scope one, two and three, of course. Now, carbon hotspots, not surprisingly, were related to meat and dairy and transport. I mean, they, they, they weren't, there were really no surprises in there, to be honest. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think for us, it's it's looking, the next steps for us really is is getting the actual data. So, as you know, I mean, scope three often is, or primarily is based on proxy data. So, we are now looking to reach out to the farms directly to lifecycle assess all these products and to get primary data so that we can then start taking action and um, and actually, you know, compare where, where are we? I mean, it's intuitively we know it's the meat and dairy, but we want to get to the actual data be, before we start um, taking any action around that. Brilliant. And we also did a life cycle analysis on your fruit and veg boxes. And this is how we evaluate the environmental impact of a product through its life cycle. From extraction and processing of the raw materials, manufacturing, distribution, use, recycling, right through to final disposal. Steph, what was it like working through this process? Um, it was really interesting, is the, the short answer. I think I'd, you know, it's, it's the old adage of you can only manage what you can measure. And of course, what life cycle assessing does is it allows you to, to measure the impact. And, and that was fascinating. And I, I love working with the data. I think until until you have the data, anything is just sort of intuition, isn't it? Or instinct, if you will. Mm. But until you have the data, you really can't take uh, concrete and focused action. Um, but as I was already saying, we, we're hoping to launch a pilot project this year to, to further LCA, the individual products. And um, and that that also will look at the the farming, the processing, packaging, and transport to our production site in Andover, Hampshire. And we're hoping to be able to sign a grade for each product, which takes the carbon, the water consumption, water pollution, biodiversity impact for each product into consideration. And to me, that's then sort of there's th threefold wins in that. One is. By being able to make this available to our customers, they can then compare products to each other and use this information to influence their, their purchasing habits. We can also use it to fine-tune our scope three with the addition of the, the primary data. And we can use it to curate our product range to you know, focus on lower carbon products once we have that data and that could influence you know what we keep in the range what we promote and when so it'll have all kinds of implications yeah so i'm i'm, I'm very excited about that we have done a small study on four of our f and v products independent to the box um lca that you undertook and the individual product LCA compared to the organic uh, compared to the supermarket equivalents showed that our organic products had uh, more than a fifty percent reduction of carbon associated with them, which was really fantastic to see, and we'd love to just get to the bottom of that. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to the the primary data. I'm really looking forward to this data showing just how good our products are because. I think the, the thing with organic is that the, the, the virtue, just as much as the devil is in the detail, 
And unfortunately, the research, the life cycle assessments, they just haven't been done to date. So for us to, to be able to take those suppliers, take those products through those life cycle assessments and, um, and yeah, really pull out what the true benefits are, it's never been, never been done before. So it is very exciting. Ed, I guess this is your area. Have you communicated this to your customers? Yes, and it's something that we we're always we're always working on. I think I think the problem with working for a sustainable business is that you invest so much in the sustainability that you you kind of have to leverage a return on it. So a big risk with talking about sustainability is that you quite often forget to remind the customer what's in it for them. But as long as we can keep bringing it back to the benefits of biodiversity, the benefits of carbon, um, reducing carbon emissions, to the, the benefits of direct trade and working fairly with farmers, I think as long as we can keep making those links back to how good the product tastes and what the benefits are for, for, for the customer. Um, I'm going to shy away from making health claims about organic, but there are, there are benefits to the consumer when biodiversity is, is increased at the at the primary producer end there are benefits to the consumer when soil organic carbon is raised there are benefits to the consumer when carbon is sequestered and 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 all of these it's really important that we we keep bringing it back to the to to, to what's in it for the customers to so keep linking it to quality keep linking it to taste keep linking it to health so it's really important that we don't just focus on any one of these topics and that's important for a number of reasons particularly when you look at carbon if you were to just measure carbon for example you would find that intensive animal farms, animal farming would always win purely for the simple reason that the animals just don't live as longer as, as long. So yes, we, we communicate about it nonstop, but it is something that we do have to balance with what the customer will enjoy in the short term. And I know you've set science-based targets to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions and this prevents the worst impacts of climate change and future-proofs your business growth. Now, could you tell us a bit about the targets and how you're working towards meeting them? So our scope one and two target is an absolute reduction of 50% by 2030 on baseline 2020. And for us, we know that 80% of our scope one and two is associated with our van fleet. So from next year, we're starting to switch over to electric vans um i'd like to say it sooner than that um however as i'm sure you know the demand currently for electric vans um outstrips supply and uh, you know some of the bigger players in the market have sort of filled the books on this but we are from from next spring we'll start taking delivery of electric vans which we're really excited about and uh, we're hoping to have that transition completed sort of you know later in so come 2027 or so we're hoping to be fully in electric vans so that's something we're excited about and that'll address 80 percent of our scope one and two now scope three because as i said we're due to grow over the next few years it's a 53 percent intensity reduction that we're looking to achieve and uh, we'll be doing that working with our suppliers and working on our product range and and also just helping suppliers you know switch to re- renewable energy if there are any any problems that we can assist with switching to lower incoming uh, lower carbon incoming transport whether that's you know changing over to hydro treated vegetable oil hbo or electric vehicles as and when they're available for the, for that um 
volume of product. So the idea really is that we'll work within our supply chain to help them transition to net zero, just as we're hoping to. Now, Ed, you have a climate emergency plan that goes beyond carbon. Could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Yeah, definitely. So the best place to start here is probably with with arguably my favourite part of our supply chain, which is the farm. And the reason I wanted to focus here is because this is where I think the serious climate change mitigation is happening. And I'm going to bring it back to one word, which I think has captured the public's imagination in a way that nothing in the farming world has before. And it's regenerative. A regenerative system, a restorative system. Personally, I find regenerative farming is a word, is a term that I take a bit of a run up to. So I tend to abbreviate it to, to regen ag or restorative. But a restorative or regenerative system is one that puts back more than it takes out, to put it very, very simply. And you'll find that regen ag farmers or restorative farmers will typically focus on soil health. And this is why I would plant organic farmers firmly into the the regen ag farming bracket. So our main certifying body is the Soil Association. Uh, They certify over 70% of our products. And the clue really is all in the name. So when the founders were looking at sustainable food systems to model their certification on, they found that they all had one thing in common. When you look after soil, everything else will fall into place. Now, there is a very strong relationship. I'm sure a lot of of listeners are aware of. There is a very strong relationship between carbon in the soil and its health and the interplay between, between soil, plants, and sometimes grazing livestock. It's fascinating, it's powerful, and it is completely underestimated. So I'm going to, to very quickly outline a few of the, the restorative or regenerative principles to illustrate how some of this works. So the first one is to not disturb the soil. Do not disturb the soil. Deep ploughing has been one of the most destructive practices that we have unleashed on the planet. So when you look at the um, North Africa, North Africa used to be known as the Great Roman Breadbasket. Middle East, sections of the Middle East used to be known as the Fertile Crescent. This is where wheat came from. Ploughing actually releases huge amounts of carbon. It also uses carbon in the form of of, of diesel for machinery. So ploughing is something that regenerative farmers will typically stay away from. This is a really interesting um, uh, quandary with with organic because weeds are a farmer's worst nightmare. So if you don't plough, you have to use weed killers. Weed killers are banned in organic. So this is why the organic space is really exciting at the moment, because you've got farmers who know they can't plough, are prohibited from using weed killers. So they're finding some amazing ways through some really innovative and regenerative and holistic and traceable methods. So it's very exciting in our space at the moment in terms of not disturbing the soil. Keeping the soil covered is also absolutely crucial. So there are two places that you won't find bare soil. Nature, well, bare soil for very long. The first is nature and the second is Denmark. Uh, probably a slight exaggeration there, but the reason <laughs> I say that is because nature abhors a vacuum. Bare soil represents a vacuum, doesn't stay bare for very long. Denmark in 1999, I think it was, made it compulsory to start growing cover crops on your land. They also call them, cat, they're also called catch crops. And the clue is, again, in the name there. Catch as in they catch excess nutrients so they can prevent runoff uh, what we call eutrophication in rivers and waterways, which is um, algae blooms. Eutrophication is what's causing the dead zones that people are hearing about um, in the oceans around the world. Off the coast of Brittany, they're also suffering from severe algal blooms from all the intensive pig farms. Um, and people are starting to lose their lives because of these. So it's it's serious. Denmark have a mitigating solution for that. 
Another principle in regenerative farming is keeping living roots in the soil. There is no healthy soil without roots. And it's, it's something that we're only just starting to realize the absolute magic of. So plants, when plants uh, photosynthesize with sunlight, they produce sugars. These sugars are hard work. So why on earth are they sending up to 40% of these sugars back down into the soil? The reason is plants, unlike us, plants can't move. So they need to form defenses. They need to form those strong relationships that they can call on in hard times. Those, are, those relationships with uh, soil bacteria, soil fungi, there's entire kingdoms that we've only just started to discover, like archaea, for example. That's a new one for me. So when they send these sugars into the soil, they invigorate that soil microbiome, and it's very much a two-way relationship. Plants look after the bacteria and the fungi, and when the plants need it, they can call on the right, right bacteria and fungi partners to help them out through drought or through pests and diseases. And also, a lot of that carbon that the, that, the, that the plant is absorbing from the atmosphere is sent down into the soil in the form of sugars into the mycorrhizal network. If anyone's, uh, if anyone's into mycorrhizals or into fungi, I would highly recommend reading Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. It's a fascinating read. And he talks a lot about how uh, fungi and the relationship with plants is what gets us out of this mess, the climate change mess. All that carbon is pumped into the ground where it came from, most importantly. Another restorative principle is growing a diverse range of crops. Now, we're touching on biodiversity here, so you might have to jump in and shut me up at some point. But I believe that there is resilience in diversity. Um, people often forget that there's actually three levels of diversity. You have diversity in genetics. And when you introduce um, genetic diversity, you're introducing, uh, you're future-proofing your crop. You have a crop for all weathers, all pests. Uh, a good example is cassava. In, uh, in Thailand, otherwise known as tapioca or manioc. So people thought that Thai farmers were going to knacker their soil with the amount of cassava that they were growing. And then some researchers introduced some, uh, some genetics from Venezuelan cassava. And lo and behold, the soil started improving. That genetic diversity has massive benefits on soil. Um, other types of diversity include species diversity, so things like intercropping. Again, means you can reduce the inputs. And uh, a diversity of ecosystems is the third level of biodiversity. So that means that you can keep things like beneficial insects on your land for a lot longer. Um, a somewhat controversial principle of regenerative farming is bringing grazing animals back to land. I'm not saying you have to eat them, but when they're there, they can make the world of difference. I'm not going to go down the Alan Savory route of advocating cows as a solution for climate change. I'm definitely not going down that route, but there is a lot to be said for ruminants being able to, to feed water and prune a grassland ecosystem. Um, when you look at uh, examples like the NEP estate or our suppliers, Court Lodge, who graze there, who, who, who operate what's called conservation grazing on dependency levels, um, PFLA, so anything that's, um, that's pasture-raised, 100% pasture-raised, is, um, is PFLA-registered. And to keep cattle healthy on nothing but pasture you have to keep that pasture in tip-top condition, peak productivity, peak fertility. Peak fertility in the form of plants equals peak carbon sequestration. So when used in the right way, all of the above can build soil fertility, and a measure of that is soil organic carbon. So quickly you can see, win, win. Yeah, and this is just 
it's something that people don't know about, isn't it? And uh, how are you communicating this to your customers? Gently, gently, I think is the is the term to use. Um, it is it is something that, um, that 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 a lot of people understand on on different levels. And I think you just you need to inject the magic back into it. You need to inject the storytelling into it. And that's my that's the favourite part of, of of my role. You need to find something that people can relate to, and you just need to be enthusiastic about it. And uh, while I don't really like using the P word, I think passionate goes a long way in um, in communicating this quite well. Brilliant, brilliant. Thanks so much for that. That's really, really interesting to to learn. And I, I guess finally, are there any exciting plans for Abel and Cole and that you can tell us about? Oh, there's lots, but I'll probably leave that to Steph because she knows what we can and can't say. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, as I've already alluded to, the for me, the Eco Impact labelling project is certainly an exciting one only because it'll give us more information and it'll allow us to to equip our customers better with that information. But also we are working on an impact report, which we're hoping to publish later this month, which is really exciting. And just, just pulling together all, all the things that we do. And and it's one of those things which I'm sure you experienced too, well when you went through B Corp certification. But, you know, we, we do do a lot, but it's not necessarily always documented and always communicated in the best possible way. And we're trying to do that through the impact report, which we're really excited about. Yes, we, we're looking at all kinds of fascinating things, such as, uh, f- for example, we'll be launching a new product category called Future Food. And and it does, it looks at products that are incredibly sustainable. We love the innovation behind it. However, they're not certified organic, which in the past has sort of been you know, our North Star, as you know. So we, we are now looking outside organic for products that for primarily that can't be organically certified for one reason or another. So an example of that would be hydroponics. You know, they, they don't involve soil, so they can't be certified by the Soil Association as organic. But that doesn't mean that they're not incredibly innovatively grown, produced, etc. And so we're on the lookout for products like that that we can highlight and bring to our customers just because they're not certified organic doesn't mean we don't want to shout about them and and make sure our customers get to enjoy them yeah that that eco impact labeling i think is is a huge one that's 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 going to become as important as nutritional labeling and i think when you when you look at anything put on a pack is going to influence customer behavior to some extent it's great that we're starting to bring sustainability into that mix. Steph and Ed, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating and brilliant talking to both of you. Great. Thank you for having us, Will. It's always good to see you. Absolute pleasure, Will. And if you'd like to know more details about this episode and our podcast, you'll find a link in the show description. And don't forget, if you've got any feedback or questions for us, you can DM us at Green Element through LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. That's it from the Sustainable Business Podcast for this month. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss next month's special episode on sustainable fashion, which we'll be releasing in mid-June to coincide with London Fashion Week. Until then, take care and we'll see you soon.